0: Anybody remember the cultural phenomenon that was New Coke? (laughs) Some of y'all remember that. We've got a picture of a can up. Go go ahead and throw that up on the screen. That's what it looked like when it came out. It was the mid 1980s. And while some of you guys were rocking your tube socks and your neon and jamming out to tears for fears, Coke was having some really big problems. Uh, their big problem was that people weren't drinking Coke as much as they used to. The beverage was 100 years old now; it had been growing for a long time in sales, but now all of a sudden, you had older drinkers that preferred Diet Coke and younger drinkers that preferred Pepsi, and fewer people overall drinking soda in the first place. And this meant a huge decline in market share for Coke. And so they're thinking, all right, what are we going to do about this? People prefer the sweeter Pepsi now. Maybe we should just make a new Coke that's sweeter and better. And so they craft a whole new beverage up and they taste test it and they market it and they very carefully reveal this thing. And here it is the thing that's going to save Coke, new Coke, a new formula. And some of you guys remember just what a smashing success that was, right? Uh, some people liked it, but it didn't matter that it was better than the original Coke. It wasn't Coke and coke drinkers like to drink coke the way they like to drink coke and so the cultural frenzy was crazy the people who didn't like it really, really didn't like it. And they started putting pressure on people who did like it to the point to where if you actually liked this new thing, you were kind of like afraid of telling people that, hey, I actually like this better than the original. It would come on, you know, at a ball game and come on the Jumbotron, a big new Coke ad, and the crowd would start booing in the middle of a ball game, not at the team, but at the ad that was up on the screen because it was a new Coke uh, their company hotline went from getting 400 calls a day to getting 1500 calls a day because so many people are calling to complain about this beverage now i don't know what the first 400 people were calling for and why would you call coke's company up anyway but for whatever reason they're calling coke was so confused that they hired a psychologist to listen to the calls and say okay get in these people's minds and tell us what is going on we don't understand Psychologist listened and he said, honestly, it sounds like they're talking about the death of a family member. Like they take it that, I know, (laughs) crazy. They take it that personally. Uh, It was a big deal to these people. So eventually, of course, like David Letterman, Johnny Carson start making fun of it on late night TV. And then, even Fidel Castro got in on the action and started making fun of them. When you've got David Letterman and Fidel Castro making fun of you, you have a really serious marketing problem. So it didn't take but three months and and Coke put the original formula back on the shelves. And when they did, their sales actually shot up. They probably made money from the whole debacle in the long run, but the whole thing kind of exists as this cautionary tale about changing things when people aren't ready for it. Well, here's the funny thing about it all. By any objective measure, new Coke was better than the old Coke. Uh, They taste tested it really exhaustively and in blind taste tests, it outperformed both the original Coke and even Pepsi as well by huge margins. A vast majority of people preferred it when they didn't know what they were drinking. Uh, So what was going on is Coke drinkers were opening up their cans and they were drinking something that was better than what they were expecting. Problem is, It wasn't what they were expecting. And as you may well know, when you expect one thing and you get another thing, it doesn't matter if the thing you get is better. Sometimes you're just going to reject it outright because it wasn't what you were expecting. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you've picked up a cold glass of something and drank one thing when you thought it was something else. Have you ever done that? Have you ever experienced like the shock that comes with like, oh, what what is this? So you like have a, what you think is a cold glass of water in your hand and maybe you just mowed the lawn like some of you did yesterday and you're like, ah, cold water and you drink it, but it's actually milk and it's not water. And so for like half a second, you're like, ah, ice water and then these alarms just start going off in your head right like Whoa, oh no this oh what it's coating my mouth funny it's lingering what's going on with this It's just total panic before you realize oh okay it's milk it's not poison it's it's milk it's actually really good milk everything's going to be okay like all right i'm drinking man it takes a minute to like absorb the fact that you're not getting what you thought you were getting well Sometimes in that like panic moment, it's possible that you might just like spit out what you're drinking because your mind is trying to wrap yourself around whatever this is that you're drinking, and and so sometimes you just totally reject it and pff, it's just all oh, what was that? Oh, it was just milk. And now I spit it everywhere. Great. Well, well, it's one thing to spit milk all over your date at the restaurant because you thought it was water, uh, but today we're actually going to read a story about people who did this very same thing to to Jesus. They received Him gladly for just a moment, and then when He turned out to not be what they were expecting, they abhorred Him, they rejected Him, they couldn't handle it. He wasn't the Savior that they were looking for. He was a better and different kind of Savior. And the truth is, we could be prone to doing the same thing if we bring our own expectations to Jesus about what we think He ought to be, we could find that he's actually different and better than we thought he was. But just like that person who's drinking milk thinking it's water, you just might spit him out. You just might reject him before you even realize that he is better than what you expected. So let's grab our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, grab the dark pew Bible in front of you and start at the back and turn to page 17. Uh, We're gonna read Matthew 21, one through 11. And while you're turning there, I just wanna tell you the very foundational truth of what Christians believe, because everything we preach is built on this, if you've never heard it before. This Holy Week, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. And that is the foundation of everything that we talk about. Because in doing that, he paid the price for our sins. In doing that, he declared himself to be Lord of all the universe and bids us to come and follow him. So we're a people that because he shed his blood for us, we gather to follow him. And as his followers, we look to his word to see a little bit of what that is like. Let's look together at Matthew 21. Verses one through 11. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, amen. This is the story of the first day of Holy Week, the day in which Jesus enters Jerusalem in a profound statement about who he is. Uh, For us, that's what it is. For them, it's the Passover celebration. This is a time of year when Jerusalem would swell up to five or six times its normal size. Uh, It would get very large, swell up like that. And as visitors were coming into the main gates, people would shout at them, quoting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we welcome you from the house of Zion. And the next group would come in, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we welcome you from the house of Zion. And on this Passover, they would receive a very special guest, indeed the one to whom the city belongs, their King, Jesus Christ. And the way that he enters the city has huge meaning for who he is and how we worship him. But to tell you all of that meaning, I'm gonna to have to back up thousands of years into Israel's history because what's happening here is Jesus is fulfilling thousands of years worth of promises and prophecies that the Lord had made about him. And so to explain that we're gonna to have to go back thousands of years to those promises. So let's go back thousands of years to the days of Abraham who was walking the earth and the Lord promised to him that from him was going to come great nations and that one of his descendants was going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Now God promised him many things, uh, but that's one that we wanna hang on to today. One of Abraham's descendants is gonna be a blessing to the whole earth. So hundreds of years go by and we're waiting for this to happen. And sure enough, uh, Abraham's grandson, from him comes the nation of Israel. And This whole nation is multiplied over the earth. And A few hundred years later, they're ruled by a man named David, who is one of Abraham's sons. David is ruling, the kingdom is really doing well, and God makes several promises to David as well. One of those promises is that his dynasty would never end because one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. So now we got two big promises. A son of Abraham is going to come to bless the whole world, every nation on earth. And a son of David is going to come to rule and reign forever. Well, things are really sounding good now. You really expect that things are going to get fantastic after this, but actually things get worse after that. Uh, A few hundred years later, God's people actually get conquered by the Babylonians. And so David's dynasty appears to come to an end because there's no longer a son of David sitting on the throne after that. Uh, And so people are lost and confused and want to wait. Wait, I thought God promised that. David's house was gonna last forever. There would always be a son of David to sit on the throne. Now the Babylonians are ruling us. And then the Persians come through and knock the Babylonians. Now the Persians are ruling us. Now the Greeks are ruling us. And now the Romans are ruling us. When are we gonna, like, I thought we were supposed to have a son of David on the throne forever. What's going on here? Well, into that darkness and into that confusion, the Lord rose up prophets to tell them that a son of David was still coming. And here are some of the things that those prophets said. We read this one from Zechariah already this morning. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the donkey. And another prophet, Isaiah, speaks of this very day when he says, go through, go through the gates and clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones and lift a standard over the people. Why? Because this son of David, this king, was gonna come through the gates of Jerusalem one day. So in that period of darkness, when they're being ruled by foreign enemies, God is giving them these promises. Now, I haven't forgotten about you. One day, a son of David, is gonna come through that gate on a donkey, on a colt. And when he does, that is my promised Messiah. So these prophets are saying, get ready, he's coming, he's going to be there one day, but he's going to be humble, he's going to be mounted on a donkey, he's going to be a a peaceful king, and he's going to rule from sea to sea and destroy all God's enemies, but at the same time, he's going to be a blessing to the whole world. How, How is he going to do that? Well, they haven't quite figured that out, but this promised son of David, this promised son of Abraham, he's going to come one day. Okay, now let's fast forward to the book of Matthew. If you had your Bibles open earlier, flip them back to Matthew chapter one. Let's look at that together. Because I want you to see knowing that, how important it is, how Matthew starts off his gospel. Okay, so the promised son of David is gonna come. The promised son of Abraham is gonna come, right? Let's look at how Matthew starts out his gospel the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can you see how packed with meaning those words are? He's that one, Jesus Christ is that one, that the prophets were saying was going to come. And now you can kind of look down at the first chapter in Matthew and maybe in your Bible reading plan, you've gotten to the genealogies and thought, oh man, this is not gonna be so much a fun day. I gotta read this instead. But it is packed with meaning because what's going on is Matthew is demonstrating through the lineage and through the years that yes, Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and is the son of David. So the reader knows from the very beginning, because he's told and then shown, Jesus is that promised Messiah. He is that promised King who is going to come and rule forever. He is that promised son of Abraham who is going to be a blessing to the whole earth. And that is the main point of Matthew's gospel. But as the reader, you know that from the beginning, but one cool thing about the book of Matthew, and this happens in books sometimes, He tells you that, but the characters in the book don't necessarily know that. Isn't it kind of fun when you're reading a book and the author tells you something, but the characters don't know it yet and you get to see how enough, well, Matthew does that here as well. Jesus would heal people and he would say, hey, now just go to the priests and offer your sacrifice for this, but keep it quiet. Don't tell a lot of people. People would call him the son of David, but they didn't seem to understand really what it meant and he wouldn't tell them what it meant. He kind of kept it on the down low for a little bit. Just a few days before this Palm Sunday story we read, they were on the road to Jerusalem, now they're entering it, but they were on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they got all kinds of, oh, some people say you're a prophet, some people say you're Elijah, you're this, you're that. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right, right? You are the Christ. You are the promised Christ. And what does he tell him? Don't tell anybody, right? That's what Jesus says. Don't, don't tell, he strictly charges them to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this is like a a poorly kept secret for almost the whole story. Okay. So Jesus is that promised one, that promised son of David and promised son of Abraham. He has not publicly declared himself to be so yet, but consider the significance now that the prophets have said he is going to come through the gates of Jerusalem, mounted humble on the colt of a donkey. And now Jesus tells his disciples, go get me a donkey, bring the colt here to me. And he rides that colt in through the gates, and the crowds are there, just like Isaiah and Zechariah said they would be lauding him, Hosanna to the Son of David. When he does this for the first time, he is publicly declaring himself to be the Davidic king. He is saying to Jerusalem, I am your king, and I have come to you. And they receive him with glad shouts, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means save us, save us, Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest to the Son of David. The problem is, though Jesus is revealing himself to be the promised Messiah to the whole public, they miss the point they greet him with enthusiasm but just like new coke drinkers back in the 80s just like that person who picks up a glass of milk thinking it's a glass of water they receive him with joy at first but then oh wait when he turns out to not be what they are expecting oh no more of that where is this crowd a few days later when another mob is calling for jesus crucifixion They're either part of that mob or they're not getting in the way, but they're not rallying around him saying Hosanna to the son of David anymore. Where's that crowd when he's dying upon a cross? They're not there shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And when this is all said and done, Jesus is going to give his great commission and ascend into heaven. And the book of Acts says there were about 120 disciples, about 120 followers of Jesus that remained. That crowd, that massive crowd in Jerusalem shouting Hosanna to the son of David was just a fickle crowd. Why? Because they expected something different than what he actually was. He was not the savior that they were looking for. Now, Matthew tells us this in a few ways. What they were doing is they were ruled by Rome, right? And they, re- they couldn't see past their immediate situation. Uh, and so they just wanted a savior from the Romans, right? So they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, save us, son of David. What they mean is save us from these Romans, like get rid of Herod, get rid of Pontius Pilate, and come and rule us so that we can dominate over these Romans. They wanted a nationalistic war hero that would save them from Rome. And you kind of have to back up and look at the whole big story to see that, kind of like we did here. But Matthew puts a few things, he embeds a few clues in this story to tell you that what these people did is they viewed Jesus through the lens of what they wanted him to be, and when he didn't meet those expectations, they wound up rejecting him. So let's look at a few of what those signs are. I'll give you two of them. The first sign that the crowd misunderstood who Jesus was is that Matthew emphasizes the donkey and the humility, but the people totally miss it. Right, if, if you look at the story, uh, Jesus comes in and Matthew makes so much of the donkey, you can see it there in the first half, all these details, you're gonna go here and you're gonna get the donkey and you're gonna bring its mother too, and the, uh, all these details about the donkey that don't seem to need to be there, but Matthew wants to emphasize that. And then he quotes the prophecy from the book of Zechariah, like he's gonna come humble and mounted on a donkey. So Matthew is making much of the fact that Jesus is coming humble, He's not coming on a war horse. He's coming on a donkey. But the people don't say any of that, right? The people just miss this completely. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. They mean, save us. They quote Psalm 118 like they do to every other visitor that comes in, but they don't notice that he comes Humble. They're just shouting, come and save us, come and save us from the Romans. Our war hero is finally here. Nope, he's not your war hero. He's coming in on a donkey. War heroes come in on a horse with a sword. He's coming on a donkey. They miss the sign of humility. They miss that he's going to be a peaceful king. Why do they miss that? Because what they want is salvation from the Romans, and they want it in a war hero. So that's the first sign that the people miss who he is. He emphasizes the donkey. They say nothing of it in their greeting of him. The second sign that people don't give it, get it is that Matthew pours so much energy into showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, right? If you're familiar with the book of Matthew, then you're probably familiar with the phrase, and this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and then it quotes the prophet. If you read Matthew a lot, you know that. And it even happens in here in verse four. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he quotes Isaiah and Zechariah in one quote right there. He did that all the time, I've never counted it, but it must be a dozen or two times, probably close to a half dozen times in the first couple chapters that he says this happened and it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That happened, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Putting so much energy into showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. But look how the people greet him in verses 10 and 11. There's so much irony here, I love this. When he entered Jerusalem, The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the one who fulfills all the prophecy? Nope. This is the one we've been waiting for that the prophets promised? No, they say, this is the prophet. That's all they got. He's the prophet from Nazareth. They see him as just another prophet coming through. They don't see that he is so much more than a prophet. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy that has ever been given. He is the yes that all of the promises of God find right there. He is the one every prophet longed to see and longed to meet. And all they've got is this is a prophet who is from Galilee. They have missed the point of who Jesus is and how great he is. So the people see that Jesus is a big deal, and they even see that he's the promised one, but because they're expecting a nationalistic hero who will rescue them from the Romans, they don't see that he is the king who will rescue the whole world from their sin. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we welcome you from the house of God. He's saying, yes, that is my house, and I am going there, and when I go there, I am gonna turn over tables, kick out your leaders, and I'm gonna bring in the blind and the lame. And when he does, they're gonna be shocked and surprised because he doesn't meet their expectations. They say, finally, a rival to defeat Herod and defeat Pontius Pilate, but they're gonna be crushed when he stands trial before Herod and when Pontius Pilate condemns him to death. They say things like, I bet he's gonna line up the Romans and." slaughter them and humiliate them just like David did to his enemies, but they're going to be disappointed when the Roman soldiers line up to mock him and to beat him because he's not what they were expecting. They're saying, the son of David has come. Let us crown him with a great crown, king of kings, but the Romans are going to crown him with a crown of Thorns and they're gonna put a sign above his head in mockery that says the king of the Jews They're saying finally we are a city no longer forsaken and they're gonna be crushed when Jesus cries out my God my God Why have you forsaken me? They're saying come and make our nation great again son of David But he's gonna say go and make disciples of every Nation because he has his sight set on the whole world but by that time None of this crowd is going to be left, because all they want is their war hero. He's not the Messiah they expected. So that was their problem. They thought he was going to be one thing, and he actually turned out to be something far better. And that tends to be how we react to that. When it's not what we expect, we've just got that impulse to say, nope, that wasn't what I was thinking it was, Out, done with that, and then the crowd is gone. But it gets tough because we tend to do the same thing, don't we? We tend to view Jesus through the lens of what we want Him to be, rather than opening our minds to what He says He really is. None of us like it when Jesus' plan is different from our plan, do we? And none of us like it when Jesus turns out to be a little different than we expected to be when we came to Him. Let me give you a few examples of how we tend to do this, how we tend to view Jesus through the lens of what we want him to be. Uh, The first one is what a lot of people are calling the prosperity gospel. There are a lot of teachers in our land who are preaching and teaching that Jesus is here to solve your immediate problems, like whatever your problem right now is, he's he's here to solve that. As we've been kind of working on our preaching podcast, I've been thinking about podcasts a lot lately. And I noticed recently that at least on the Apple iTunes store, if you look at the preaching podcasts, several of the most popular ones preach this very thing. Like one of them is is a male preacher who preaches that Jesus is here to help you pay your overdue bills and help you find financial prosperity. Like that's what he does. So he's filled this church. I think it's still the largest gathering of, of Christians, so to speak, in the countries filled this church with people who are eager to find financial prosperity right now in Jesus. And another one of them is, is a lady who preaches similarly that Jesus is here to help you find emotional healing from your scars and the terrible things that you have gone through. And these are two of the most popular preaching podcasts. In the If you go to top, they're gonna be, both of them are gonna be right there. Now let's imagine that you buy into that idea and you come to church because you've got a, an immediate need right now. Someone has hurt you and you're scarred and you need help with that, or, or you need help paying your water bill and you're hoping that Jesus is gonna magically like give that to you. Let's imagine you come in with that idea and then Jesus says, well, yes, one day I am going to build a kingdom where overdue bills are a thing of the past, and I am going to wipe away every tear, but that's not till I come back. For now, I'm just going to walk with you through your hardships. And you came expecting you were going to get immediate help right now, like Jesus is going to fix your problems right now. He says, no, actually I'm going to walk through your hardships until I come back, until I fix everybody's problems then. It's pretty likely that you're going to say, oh, that's... That is not what I came in here for. That tastes different than what I thought I was drinking. And you just might spit him out because he didn't meet the expectations that you came in with. And if that's you, I wanna tell you that what Jesus promises is not an immediate solution to your immediate problems, although he does give help with those things. What he promises is so much better than that. He promises entrance into an eternal kingdom where nobody has an overdue bill. He promises entrance into an eternal kingdom where we will look back and say, remember when we used to cry? Remember when we used to be sad and when people used to do evil things to us? He gives us entrance into a kingdom like that, but we've got to wait for it. And that is so much better to wait and to suffer and to be prepared for his coming kingdom so much better than getting a quick fix to your problem. So if he tastes different than what you thought you were drinking, take take the medicine, take the good news that he's building a good kingdom from you, but you've got to wait for it. Another way that we tend to view Jesus through the lens of what we want him to be uh, has to do with uh, some of the ethics and alternative lifestyles we want to live. Like I'll, I hear a lot of people say of Jesus, well... I don't know who God is, but whoever he is, no loving God would tell me that I can't live with my boyfriend or marry someone of whichever gender I want to or try to find happiness by exploring gender reassignment. Like No loving God would say no to that quest that I am on for happiness because that's a fundamental human right. And so if you come to Jesus with that kind of idea, like you've already made up your mind on one area of ethics and the Lord has to endorse this lifestyle that you're living, it's very possible that you might come to him and hear him say through his scriptures, well, actually I designed your body and I know how it flourishes and I have good ways that I want you to walk in. They will be a blessing to you if you walk in my good ways, come and follow me. Well, if you've already built up your idea that God has to affirm whatever lifestyle you're leading, it's a pretty good chance that's gonna be abhorrent to you. That's not gonna taste like milk, that's gonna taste like sour milk to you, and you are gonna spit that out and say, that is an evil God, that is not the God I want. When the Lord opens his hand to you and says, come and follow my good ways, and be blessed. So if that is you this morning, I wanna tell you that the God you expect is not as good as the real Jesus. There is a better food in his house. There is a better lifestyle walking in his ways. And even if it feels like it's not right at first, I can promise you myself his ways are good and they are worth following. The last way that we tend to view Jesus through the lens of what we want him to be is actually kind of similar to the way that Israel did it. Um, Now, think about what they wanted. They wanted a hero to come, a nationalistic hero to come and make their nation great again, right? So they were probably saying things like, if only this nation would follow God again, Then he would come near to us and he would be blessed. And that is all we want. We just want this nation to follow God again so that we will be blessed. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something people say today? It is something we say today because we love our country that the Lord has given us. And many of us in this room would love for our nation to follow the Lord and be blessed. And the truth is, if everybody lived according to the Bible, we would have a beautiful and flourishing land but here's where that can go off skew a little bit you can get to the point where your idea of god's blessing is our nation flourishing again and that's what you want out of that's what you're praying for all the time that's what you're craving that's what you want all the time and you can forget the fact that he has his eyes set on the whole world and so if your idea of god's blessing becomes wrapped up completely in america you can become very disappointed when God calls one of your children or grandchildren to be a missionary to China. Say, well, what, to China? They're the ones that we're afraid might overtake us. What, no, 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 no. Or if God calls one of your children or your grandchildren or you yourself to care for homeless immigrants, it can become such a letdown because your whole picture of the Lord blessing people is Lord blessing America. Well, Jesus, his mission is not to make our nation great. His mission is to build his own nation from people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So we do ask the Lord to bless our land and we do love our land as long as the Lord gives it to us. But we wanna see him build that new kingdom that is coming because that's what he's promised and that is who he is. So that's one way that we can look it at, that you know, they were looking at Jesus through the lens of what they wanted him to be. Uh, You know, another way you could think of it is that they had this picture of how the week was going to go, right? And it did not go according to their plan. He did not come in there with a sword and take out Herod like they thought he was going to do. He went into the temple and took out them (laughs) instead. And they were a little surprised by that. Uh, That's got application for us, too, because I hardly know a Christian who has not walked through the Christian life for a few years and has not at some point thrown their hands up in the air and said, this was not the plan. (laughs) Like, this is not how this was supposed to go. Can I get amen? Is that how it is? That is how it is. Like, you just get surprised. Life is a vapor. Loved ones that you know get sick, and sometimes they perish, and sometimes the Lord moves you from one city to another, or one career to another. Lord takes your spouse away. What is, this is not the life that I thought God was calling me to. That's pretty similar to the experience that Israel had that week. They, They thought the week was gonna go one way, we went a very different way. And so I can just imagine the Lord riding in through Jerusalem, hearing them shout his name and say to himself, are you still gonna follow me when this doesn't go according to your plan? Are you still gonna follow me when this turns out to be so different from what you expected? And I think he might be saying the similar thing to us today, will you still follow him when your life doesn't go the direction you think it's going to go? When he throws a curveball at you and you say, that was your plan, really? Of all the things in the world, that was your plan? Will you still follow him then? Well, let me encourage you, follow him then. Don't be like this crowd that loses interest in him when he turns out to be different than they thought, or when the plan turns out to be different than what they thought. Jesus is just who he says he is. And the crowd that day cried, Hosanna. They cried, Save us, Jesus. But they cried it with fickle hearts. But the Lord calls you today to cry out to Him, Hosanna save us, but to cry it out with sincerity, not with some false picture of what he's got to be in order for you to follow him, not with some picture of what the plan has to be in order for you to follow him, but a full yielding that says, Jesus, everything I know about you from the Bible says that you are worth following, so I will trust you no matter who you are. You are who you say you are. The true king of the universe who is building for himself the kingdom of every tribe and every tongue And every nation bids you to come and follow him today. Let's pray. Father, you bid us to come and follow your son, Jesus. And in this moment, we yield our expectations of who he's got to be for us to follow him. We submit to him as a servant does to a true king and says, whoever you are, I'm behind you. I follow you because we know that you are good and your son is good. We know that his ways are good. Even if you're calling us to give up things we don't want to give up. Even if you were calling us to give up plans that we don't want to give up and to to give them over to you and say, we make our plans, but you determine our steps. Despite how hard that is, God, in this moment now, we yield ourselves to you. As the old song says, we trust and obey. We trust and obey for there is no other way to be happy in you. We give our whole selves to you in the name of your son Jesus, amen. All right, well, let's spend a few minutes considering how the Lord might.